listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. I don't know if you saw the title of today's broadcast, but I'm going to be talking about three errors uh, that believers make, that the church makes, um, that make the devil happy. Three Christian errors that make the devil very happy. And people don't even know they're making these mistakes. And they don't even, some people don't even know these are mistakes, sadly. But we're going to cover this because understand that if we're living in these final moments of time, without question, the enemy wants to fight against a powerless church, wants to fight against a powerless church. In fact, he doesn't want to have to deal with the type of church that God has anointed uh, to be on the earth and to accomplish his agenda. So the enemy, the reason that he is not only a liar, but the father of lies is because he wants you to believe a lie, a deception, so that you'll take incorrect actions moving forward and miss what God has planned for you to do. In today's broadcast, I'm covering these three dangerous errors Christians make, churches make, that when you make these errors, it really makes the devil happy because it's exactly what he wants you to do. These are the mistakes, the exact things he wants you to do so that you miss out on what God has planned for your life and for the church at large. And so we're going to cover them from the word of God. And that's why I asked you to share it because as we are coming closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, closer and closer to the return of Christ, it's more important than it's ever been for Christians to do what they're called to do. We are literally living on borrowed time right now. Christ is coming and he's coming soon. We're already seeing the signs of the second coming. If we are, how much closer are we to the rapture of the church if we're seeing signs for the second coming? By the way, if you don't understand this, the rapture of the church is a signless coming of Christ. There are no signs that uh, go before the rapture. The Bible says he'll come like a thief in the night. Uh, the Bible tells us that with, in the twinkling of an eye that we'll all be changed. There are no signs. When I was growing up, we actually had a doctrine of the church that was preached called the imminent return of Christ. We lived ready to see Jesus at any moment. Now, with some of these heretical things being preached in church, we got the hyper grace movement that you can live any way you want. God will still bless you. And you can still, you know, everybody's going to heaven by the end. Even the devil will go back to heaven and all this crazy stuff. You've got to live ready to see Jesus when he comes. The imminent return of Christ. He could come at any moment. And there are no signs preceding the rapture, but there are signs that precede, many of them, that precede the second coming of Christ after the tribulation. So because we know this is true, we have to be ready at any moment. Morning, Caitlin and Dana and Tracy. Good to have you on today. So I want you to go with me. We're going to cover these three things uh, in a little bit of depth today that show you the importance of not making these mistakes as a church but also as a believer, because every believer is part of the church. Every one of us are parts or members, as Paul said, 
of the body of Christ. We make up the body. The church is the body. Ephesians 1 tells us that. Christ is the head and we are the body. So I want you to take this down, make notes today, put it in the comment section for people that will watch later and uh, it'll help them to go through the teaching when they see the scripture references typed in. So help me out with that. Uh, But we're going to start in the gospel of Mark chapter six. The gospel of Mark chapter six is where we're beginning today. And um, so I want you to catch this. Jesus Christ, who is, and by the way, we're welcoming everybody. We got people here live in the studio today, live in the sanctuary. And uh, you're welcome to join us any of these mornings at 1030, by the way. All week long, we'll be here Monday through Friday. And uh, so we're happy to have people here with us in the, in the sanctuary this morning. We love you guys. Um, but Mark chapter 6, understand something before, as we preface this passage. Jesus Christ himself was God in the flesh totally. He was God. He was all man and he was all God at the same time. From the moment of his birth all the way to his resurrection, he was God in the flesh. Isn't it interesting to you, though, that Jesus didn't perform any miracles at all until he got filled with the Holy Ghost? He got filled with the Holy Ghost in the Jordan, as he was baptized in the Jordan River by John, the heavens opened. He was filled with the Holy Ghost. Luke 4, 1 tells us he was led into the wilderness full of the Holy Ghost. 40 days of prayer and fasting, Luke 4, 14. And he returned from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Ghost. And then wedding at Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2, he begins his miracle ministry. But just like us, we need the equipment of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the empowerment, Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He didn't do any miracles until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So understand this. It's not that Jesus was ever a failure. It's not that he was never God or the son of God. It's just that there are some things that we can do as humans that will hinder us from receiving the blessings of God. God doesn't force miracles on people. He doesn't force healing on people. He doesn't force salvation on people. But we receive those things by faith. So here's a story in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to talk about the first error made by Christians and made by churches that make the devil very happy. Um, First of all, Jesus goes back to his own hometown of Nazareth. And I'm going to read to you Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to break this down. Let's read it. Look at this. And Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do there no mighty work, none, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at what? Their unbelief. And then he went about among the villages teaching and preaching. So I want you to see this. Is it the case 
that Jesus lost his power when he went back to Nazareth? No, because we can see that he clearly healed a few people who did have faith in him. What was the issue that Jesus dealt with in Nazareth that stopped the power of God from moving? It was their unbelief. It was their unbelief. The number one mistake that churches and Christians make that make the devil very happy is that they doubt the word of God. That's number one. And I want you to see this. I want you to put it in the comments. Number one, they doubt the word of God. They doubt the word of God. This is so foundational. And we say, well, you know, I don't think Christians are really doing that. There's Christians all over the place that doubt the word of God is, is actually true. There are Christians that don't even believe that the word of God, the Bible, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know this or not. There are Christians who actually believe that just men wrote the Bible and that, you know, the Bible has errors in it. And that the, I mean, there's Christians that call, that call themselves Bible-believing Christians that don't believe the Bible's a supernatural book. They believe it's good, you know, to use as a guide and direct our moral decisions and that, but they don't believe that every word in this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so they look at it as a natural resource instead of a supernatural resource. Big mistake. Big mistake. Because the moment you put the Bible on a natural level with every other book, with every other quote-unquote holy book, understand something. The Bible is not on the same level as the Quran. It's not on the same level. It's not on the same level as any New Age philosophical writings. It's not on the same level as anything written by Hindus. this, This Bible is not on the same level as anything in this world. This Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of the Most High God. In fact, the Bible says about itself in Psalm 138 and verse 2 that God has exalted or magnified his word above his name. The word of God is even magnified above the name of God. Second Timothy chapter three, Paul writes to Timothy in verse 16. You know what he says? He says, all scripture, all of it, not just the new Testament, not just Jesus words, not just the gospels, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable And then he lists what it's profitable for, for correction and reproof. And so that what? The servant of God or the men of God can be perfected and equipped. So all scripture, not some, all of it. I've actually had preachers say to me, well, you know, we just really try to focus on the gospels, you know, on the red letters, because that's what Jesus said. What they don't realize is Jesus is the word. (laughs) He's the word made flesh. He existed in the beginning. All of this that we have here was given by Christ. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. It was breathed out of God's mouth and men were carried along and they wrote the scriptures. They wrote the scriptures. And so understand something. People doubt the word of God. And when they do, look at what it does. Look at the effects of doubting the word of God. It stops the move of God in any region person, or church. When you doubt the word of God, it stops God's power from moving, period, period. 
in your life, not worldwide, in your life, in your church. When you doubt the word of God, I want you to put that in the comments. When you doubt the word of God, it stops God's power from moving in your life. And if you've got leadership in a church that doubt God's word, it stops God's power from moving in that area in that entire church body. That's the danger. Makes the devil very happy, very happy to see God's power stifled and not moving. I want you to catch this with me. You say, well, is that, could that really be true? Yes, it's true. Go to James. I'm going to show you something in the book of James. See, this is the danger of doubt. There's a danger of doubt. Doubt's a dangerous thing. It's an evil thing. It's a very evil thing. Did you know the Bible says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. (laughs) That'll blow people's minds. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, why is that the case? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So look at this. In the absence of faith, God is displeased. If God's displeased with your life, that's sinful. Anything that's not pleasing to him is sinful. And that's why Paul wrote to the Romans and said in Romans 14, 23, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we have to please God with our lives, but that takes faith to please God. Faith in what? Faith in his word. Because remember this, God is his word. He is his word. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God is his word. He's not separated from his word. He is his word. And so when we doubt, catch this now, because this will blow people's minds, put it in the comments. When you doubt God's word, you doubt him. Catch that. If you doubt God's word, you're doubting him personally because he's the one who said his word. Remember again, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. No man. In fact, just to pull this up before we go to James, I want, I want to just make a point here from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Listen, listen to how important, I mean, this couldn't be any more important of a passage than it is. This is one of the most vital passages in the New Testament regarding God's word. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Listen to this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So these things were not written by people who didn't know that they were talking about. It was written by eyewitnesses. Just like if you have a, a court case and the testimony of somebody that's it's hearsay, well, I heard that he did that murder. Well, that's not evidence that condemns. But if you were an eyewitness, I watched him commit that murder. That testimony has all the weight, all the weight. Why? You were there. You saw it for yourself. It's not secondhand knowledge. And these, uh, Peter the apostle and the other apostles are saying, These aren't myths we followed. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These men that wrote this stuff saw it happen. Look at what his Bible says. Um, 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born unto him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard the voice. Catch this. We ourselves heard the voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now look, verses 20 and 21 are mind-blowing. Catch it. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So there you got to catch that. No man just decided to write the Bible or any book in it or any verse in it. We, this is not uh, someone's own interpretation, but for, look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God and were carried along as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what you got to see. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He inspired everything that was written in this book. Everything. Everything. All scriptures breathed out by God. So the reason the devil wants you to doubt it so badly is because this word has the ability supernaturally to change every circumstance in your life has the ability to destroy every attack of the devil against your life. So what can the devil do? Because he can't stop the word. So what does he try to do? Try to stop you from believing the word. It's evil. Did you know the first words? Those of you here, those of you watching, listen to this. The first words we have record of the devil saying, did God really say to Eve, first thing, it's his mode of operation. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in this garden? God didn't say that. Immediately, he's twisting what God actually said. God only said you can't eat from these two trees. He didn't say you can't eat from every tree. But notice what the devil does. He twists the truth to get you to disbelieve it. Did God really say? And do you know he's still saying the same thing today? Did God really say he'd heal you? Did God really say you're forgiven? Did God really say, and he's doing the same thing to people today, trying to get them to doubt what God already said in his word. It's demonic. It's demonic. And notice why he does what he does. Notice what the scripture says in James chapter one, because herein lies the problem for doubt and unbelief. James chapter one, and uh, let's read verses um, six through eight. James one, six through eight, listen to this. But let, well, let's read verse five to put it in context. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Why? Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 8 will blow your mind. Or verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything 
from the Lord. Verse eight, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if we want to receive anything from the Lord, we cannot doubt his word. That's what, the, that's what James is teaching us here in verses five through eight. If you're going to ask God for something, you can't doubt him when you ask him. If you're believing, whatever you're believing for could be healing, could be blessing, could be peace, could be joy, could be restoration in your marriage. It could be household salvation. Whatever it is, you can't ask him and then doubt him. Don't ask him and doubt him because notice what happens when you doubt him. It causes you to be placed in an area, according to James, which is inspired by the Holy Ghost, where you can't receive anything from the Lord. That's why doubt, catch this, that's why doubting his word is so wicked. That's why the devil works so hard to get the church to doubt. Because if all, see, he doesn't have to, first of all, he can't just go up into heaven. Devil can't go into heaven and destroy heaven. Can't destroy God. Can't destroy Christ. And he really can't destroy the body of Christ. Because we're already under covenant. We're already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He's got no authority to do any of that. So what can he do? The, because he can't stop the word, all he can do is try to stop you from believing the word. That's it. That's it. So you know what he'll do? I'll tell you what he'll do. He will try to get people around you that'll speak seeds of doubt and unbelief into your life. He will actually try to put you in places where you hear a word from spiritual leaders who are no spiritual leaders that'll try to get you to doubt the word. And we'll deal with that in a moment. But notice this, as the devil's working hard, what he's trying to do more than anything else is to cause us to have a seed of doubt and unbelief about what was already written and what's already been said. Because he knows that if he can plant that seed, this is, now catch this, this is why, and I want you to put it in the comments, I must take every thought captive. I have to. You know, people, people look at that and they think it only applies to like uh, thoughts of sin in, in a way. Thoughts of lust. You know, thoughts of uh, violence. Thoughts of anger. You know, all those things. And people read that, that passage, take every thought captive and make it obey Jesus Christ. Well, they think that only deals with those kinds of thoughts, but it doesn't. What about when the devil tries to get you by a thought to doubt God's word? You take that captive and put it in prison and make it obey Jesus. Hallelujah. You take every thought captive and you make it. See, this is why Paul, see, because here's the thing. When you want to get into this fully, let me tell you what you got to think about. This is the importance of renewing your mind. If you don't renew your mind and take control of your soul, you'll struggle through your entire Christian life. You'll struggle through your whole life. Because every person is a three-part being. You are a spirit. That's who you truly are. The spirit's eternal. It's who you are. You have a soul, which is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. And you live in a body. It's what you see in the mirror. 
your physical body, but you're not your body. You know how you, you know how I know you're not your body? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I put my body under. So he was, he was talking about his body as a separate individual. I put my body under on a daily basis. Who's the I? His spirit. My spirit puts my body under on a daily basis, making it do what it should. Otherwise, after having preached to others, I myself will become a castaway, the King James says. Other translations are reprobate or disqualified. So Paul said, if I allow my flesh to run my life, it'll disqualify me from God's blessings. Same is true about your soul. If an unrenewed soul or mind runs your life, it disqualifies you from God's blessings. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So if you, let me give you an example. If you think or feel as though you are nothing, that's how you were raised, you were verbally abused, you were talked down to, you, your self-confidence is not there, you've, made, you've been made to believe you're nothing, if you do truly believe it because of what's happened to you, guess what? The actions you take will mirror what you believe to be true. You will let people talk to you like you're nothing. You won't expect good things because nothing shouldn't get good things. And your life will play out with you living the reality of a nothing. Why? Because you believed a narrative about yourself. And as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. He becomes. You will experience the reality of what you believe to be true. See, because once you understand who you are in Christ and your importance and your righteousness and your position and you're a king and a priest, you understand all those things more than a conqueror. I always triumph in his name. All those things. You start to realize God has made me to be somebody. I'm important. I'm vital in the kingdom of God. I'm vital to the body. And your whole mind is renewed and you shift. Now I don't let people talk to me like I'm nothing. I don't let people talk to me like I'm nobody. I don't endure that kind of harassment. I cut it off because it's not for me. Not for me. And you begin to understand. You know, Dr. T.L. Osborne wrote something in one of his books one time that I never understood. Because he, he'd been doing, you know, he did mass crusades in about 80 nations of the world. And when I say mass crusades, if those of you that are watching don't know who T.L. Osborne was, you should Google him or YouTube him and watch his crusades and see this man. He would go into nations that no one's even heard of, Turkmenistan, you know, and hold a crusade where you got 800,000 people on a field, sea of people. He'd go into impoverished nations. And he said something in his book that I was like, what in the world does that even mean? He said one of the first things that you see happen in a pagan nation when people get saved. He said, you see God restore their dignity unto them. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? Until I went to some of these nations and you see what a life of depraved sin does to a man and woman. It almost turns you into a desperate animal. People are scratching, doing anything they can, they can to get by and survive and stealing and killing and raping, pillaging, murdering, walking around half naked. Literally, sin is a killer. And it steals your dignity from you. Turns you into a beggar. 
turns you into a pauper, has you with your hand out, a pitiful creature to look upon. And T.L. Osborne said, when the salvation comes to a man or woman, the first thing God does is restores their dignity to them. Why? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You become or will experience the reality of what you believe to be true. That's why it's important what you think about yourself. It must be defined by this word from God. I don't go around. When people ask me how I'm doing, and I don't care what the devil's tried to throw at me or my wife at any given moment. One time my daughter was suffering with a blood disease and a heart condition in the intensive care unit of the hospital. My cousin Jonathan Shuttlesworth called me up, talked to him for an hour and a half, and then he went and called his mom. She said, well, I guess you heard from Teddy. He's really battling in the hospital with his daughter. He said, I just talked to him for an hour and a half. We laughed and joked. He never mentioned it one time. Why? Why did I never mention it? Because I don't allow my life to tell me how I'm doing. I allow the word to tell me how I'm doing. Oh, hallelujah. Catch this now. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that you don't allow external forces to dictate your confession. If somebody asks me how I'm doing, I don't even care if the devil is in the midst of attacking me. You know what I say? I'm extremely blessed. I'm doing very well. Somebody asked me yesterday after church, how you doing? I said, I used my grandfather's line before he passed away. I said, if I was doing any better, I'd be dangerous. Hallelujah. <laughs> if I was doing any better. You know what my grandfather used to say? They'd say, you know, they called him Mickey. His name was A.E. Shuttlesworth. Called him Mickey because he was born the same year Mickey Mouse came out and he had big ears. They called him Mickey through his whole life. Mickey Shuttlesworth. He said, how you doing, Mickey? He said, well, I'm suffering with comfort. Dying of contentment, and I feel better all over more than anywhere else. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It's a positive confession. And I'm not talking about becoming, you know, cliche. If somebody asks you, how are you doing? You give them 15 minutes of, I'm too blessed to be distressed. I'm under the spout where the glory comes out. It's like, just say you're doing fine and move on. But I'm, I'm being honest with you. My confession, how do I speak? How do I talk about myself? Somebody, how are you doing? I am extremely well. I'm doing amazing. And you know, people don't hear that. I'm noticing that more and more people don't hear that in our generation. I'll go to a restaurant, waiter, waitress will come up or somebody in the middle of the drive through How are you today? And if I'm like, I am amazing. I'm doing amazing. I've, I'm doing great. They're like, wow, it's actually good to hear that. You don't hear that often. You know why? Because people don't think they're doing great. People allow the world to dictate how they're actually doing. I don't allow myself to talk like that because I know the truth. Not because I'm trying to make something happen. It's already happened because it's written in this word. How can I be more than a conqueror and not doing well? <laughs> How can I be triumph, always triumph in his name? If that's my position, I always triumph in his name. Thanks be unto God, 1 Corinthians 15 and 57. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I've got the victory, if I always triumph, and if I'm more than a conqueror, how can I be doing any less than excellent? So I don't say what I see, I say what I read. We don't say what we see, we say what we read. I say it this way, I don't say what I see in the world, I say what I see in the word. I don't say what I see in the world, I say what I see, I say what I see in the word. And that's the key. So how are you doing? I'm excellent. I'm doing extremely well. I couldn't be doing better. I don't know how I, I mean, God said I will. I just don't see how he's going to do it because I'm so blessed right now. 
is the worst day I'll ever have. Right now is the worst I'll ever have in my life. This is the lowest you'll ever see me in my life right now. Yesterday was the lowest I've ever been. Today's the lowest I'll ever be. Right? Because <laughs> tomorrow's going to be greater. I only increase. You only increase. We always triumph. You got to talk. You got to say what the word says. The path of Proverbs 4.18, the path of the just is a shining light that shines brighter and brighter until the perfect day. That's the return of Christ. Brighter and brighter. I, my path doesn't get darker and darker. I'm not bright one day and dark the next. I'm not doing on the mountain one day and in the valley the next day. No, never ending increase is God's plan for you. Amen. Amen. Never ending increase. Well, brother, you know, in this life we will have trouble. Yeah, but that's talking about persecutions for believing what you believe. Jesus prophesied you'll be hated all over the world for my name's sake. That's persecution. That's not you going through sickness and disease. You going through bankruptcy. You going through, it's not those things. It's evil men and women persecuting people of God for what they believe about Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. But understand something. I refuse to doubt the word of God for any reason whatsoever. Any reason. I won't doubt it. If it's in this, I love what Smith Wigglesworth said. I believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. If you want to know the truth about it, God said it. That settles it. Whether you believe it or not. I mean, the only way to get it to manifest in your life is to believe it. But whether you believe it or not, God still said it. That still settles it. Amen. If he said he's the healer, whether you receive healing or not, he's still the healer. Doesn't change him. If people don't get, let me ask you a question. We just went to Mark 6. Jesus was in Nazareth. He couldn't heal the masses there. But was he still the healer? Of course he was. It's just that he couldn't be the healer for them because they wouldn't receive him. I refuse to have a provider who can't provide for me. Catch this, man. Catch this. I refuse to have a healer who can't heal me because I've doubted his word. I won't doubt him. I heard one preacher say, if you're going to doubt anything, doubt your doubts. If you're going to doubt anything, doubt your doubts. It's the number one thing that you see. That's right, Cora. Of course, that our opinion is irrelevant. My opinion doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with what God said. I just believe it. I say, yes, Lord, and I believe it. I believe it. So I want you to see this. The mistake number one that makes the devil so happy is that people doubt the mighty word of God. It's a big mistake. It's a demonic thing that puts you in a place where you can't receive anything from the Lord. But let me tell you on the flip side, is if you believe his word, even in a world full of people who do not, there's nothing God cannot do for you. There's nothing God cannot do for you. Notice this, Mark 6, I'm still in the same spot. When Jesus went to Nazareth, notice even in the midst of massive unbelief, there were people in the crowd who believed he was the healer, who believed he was the Messiah. And in a sea of unbelief, he was able to, with laser accuracy, locate the ones with faith, lay his hands on them. And they were healed in the sea of unbelief. He, listen to how Jesus, Jesus is able with laser accuracy to locate 
and pinpoint faith in the midst of unbelief. You know what that means? Doesn't matter if everybody in your neighborhood doesn't believe him. If you believe him, he's coming to your house. Glory to God. I said, if everybody in your neighborhood was an atheist and you were the only Bible-believing Christian, he would ignore their homes and come straight to your home. He knows how to pinpoint faith in a sea of unbelief. Glory to God. So number one, the number one mistake or error that makes the devil, devil so happy is when believers and churches doubt the word of God. So let me give you number two. The second error or mistake that believers or churches make that make the devil very happy is that they narrow down the gospel. They narrow down the gospel. Those that are watching online, put it in the comment section. Number two, they narrow the gospel. Narrow the gospel. And, by, and I'm going to explain this and break it down. By narrowing the gospel... They hurt you because faith is compartmentalized. I deal with this in Miracle Word University in our mountain moving faith class. Faith is compartmentalized. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. You don't just have general faith that receives everything God has. It doesn't work that way. Faith is based on what you've heard, right? So Paul says in Romans 10, how, and this is in regards to salvation, how can they believe on someone in whom they've not heard? Meaning, how can a person get saved in the name of Jesus if they've never even heard Jesus exists or heard the gospel about Jesus? They can't is the answer that Paul's trying to get the Romans to see. Without a preacher of the gospel, there can be no salvation. That's why he said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Without the gospel, there's no salvation. So, but he was saying, if they've never heard about Jesus, how can they believe in Jesus? But that shows you salvation faith is compartmentalized. You got to hear the gospel to believe on Christ and be saved. But let's go further. What about the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Speaking in tongues. That's also compartmentalized. Acts 19 Paul goes to Ephesus and finds 12 men and says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? What was their answer? We've not even heard there be such a thing as the Holy Ghost. Never even heard of that. What is it? He said, well, hold on. What baptism were you baptized with? They said, John's baptism. They said, well, he said, well, that's just baptism in water. And notice what he does next. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That means they got saved. All they had at that point was John's baptism of repentance. But they'd not been baptized in the name of Jesus. So the first thing Paul does, gives them the gospel, gets them saved in the name of Jesus, brings them into the kingdom. Then what does he do? Lays his hands on them and they're all filled with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues. Twelve men in all. But they couldn't receive that gift. They had faith for repentance. They had faith then to be saved. But it took Paul's message about the Holy Ghost to give them faith to receive the Holy Ghost. Oh, hallelujah. Which shows you faith is compartmentalized by what you know, by what you hear. You know, Jesus preaching, Paul preaching. Paul's a great example. Paul's preaching in the book of Acts. And and he says, and seeing that the man had faith to be healed. 
Well, how did he have faith to be healed? Must have heard a healing word. Same with blind Bartimaeus. Jesus is leaving Jericho in Mark chapter 10. All these people are out there and they're all saying, here comes Jesus of Nazareth. Here comes Jesus of Nazareth. But notice what Bartimaeus said. Jesus, son of David. He didn't say Nazareth. You know why? He didn't need a carpenter. He needed a Messiah. Carpenter couldn't make new eyes for Bartimaeus. He needed a Messiah. He needed the anointed one, the Christ. Notice Jesus just kept on moving when everybody else said Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth. The moment Bartimaeus said, son of David, Jesus stopped, turned, said, bring him to me. What was the difference? Bartimaeus called out by faith because he had heard about what Jesus could do. So what he heard, faith comes by hearing. What he heard put faith in his heart to receive healing from the master. If you never hear, see, and and this is what I want to talk to you about, narrowing the gospel. If you've got spiritual leaders that narrow the gospel down and actually cut out blessings that are included in the gospel, you know what it does? It's detrimental to the people in the pew because they don't, they can't have the faith to receive those other things in the gospel if the preachers won't preach them. What do I mean? Well, Jesus didn't just die so you'd be saved from sin. That is the main thrust of of the redemptive act. But notice, he also took stripes upon his back to heal your body. Did he not? 1 Peter 2.24, by whose stripes you were healed. You know, Jesus didn't have to heal your body. He could have just saved your soul. He could have just made you right with God, put you in right standing, and said, now just deal with life until heaven comes. But he loved you too much to leave you sick on the earth. So what did he do? Took stripes upon his back so that he could heal you while you were still here on the earth. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the redemptive package. If you don't believe it's part of the redemptive package, go read the book of Revelation. Huh. And you'll start to see there were actually seven things Jesus died for, if you didn't know that. Revelation 5, 11, and 12, the Bible says there's angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, flying around the throne 24-7. What are they saying? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven things Jesus was slain to receive. Well, he didn't receive them for himself. Jesus didn't have to die to get power. He had power before he died. Didn't didn't he cast out demons before he was resurrected? Didn't he raise the dead before he was resurrected? Didn't he open the eyes of the blind and cleanse the leper before he was resurrected? Yes. He didn't have to die and resurrect to get power. He already had power. He He died and was resurrected to receive power to give it to you. Oh, hallelujah. He did it to give it to you. And notice the pattern of Jesus' ministry on the earth. He didn't just preach repentance. He didn't just forgive people's sins. He healed their bodies. Everywhere he went, he healed their bodies. He even would break the law of Moses and heal on the Sabbath when the Pharisees were ticked off that he did. You're going to actually heal on the Sabbath day when there should be no work? People that had no compassion, religious religious bums with no compassion for people, And so you understand that there are things included in your redemption. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty he could make you rich. Part of the covenant redemptive package is that God's your provider and will bless you financially. I know there's people out there that don't believe it or don't like it. Can't change the word of God. It's not only in the New Testament, it's in the Old. Blessed his children financially. In fact, he listed poverty as a curse for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28. Prolonged poverty is a curse. Put it in the comments section for everybody that's watching. Prolonged poverty is a curse. It's not a blessing. It's a curse. And Jesus Christ, what did he do to people that obeyed his word? Bless them. Luke 5, Peter let him use his boat. Peter allowed him to push out into the shallows and teach the crowd on the shore. And when Peter had fished all night and caught nothing, Jesus said, now because you've obeyed my word, allowed me to use your ship, now push out into the deep and let, let down your nets for a catch. He caught so many that the nets began to tear. You go to John 21 after Jesus' resurrection. He's, he's on the shore, calls out to them. Hey, how many fish have you caught? No fish. Been fishing all night. Oh yeah, cast your nets to the other side. Do it. There's so much fish, they can't believe it. 153 large fish, and they recognized by that one command, that's the Lord on the shore. Anytime that Jesus has obedience to his word, it brings increase, even financially. Isaiah 119, if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. Job 36, 11, if they'll only obey and serve me, they'll spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. It's all through the Bible. It's not just Old Testament, it's new also. Give and it shall be given unto you. Well, that's a command. If you obey the command, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be blessed financially. It's part of the covenant package. What do you think? God wants you to be saved and healed and broke? I mean, people think that? I mean, Jesus made the point in Luke, or in uh, Matthew chapter 7, to those that were standing there. He said, I, I need you to get the, the personality traits, the nature of your heavenly father. He said, you are earthly fathers and know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? What was he talking about? Was he talking about spiritual gifts? No. What did he use as examples? What you eat. How many of you, if, if you, your child asks you for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? If they ask you for a fish, do you give them a serpent? What is Matthew 6 dealing with? What will we wear? What will we eat? Where will we live? Natural things. Not spiritual. I love every, every Christian that's religious tries to spiritualize everything. Well, you know, brother, when it said, though he was rich for your sake, to be because you might be rich. It's talking about spiritual riches, brother. Oh, is it? Because if you look at the word in the Greek language, it's the word pluteo. It actually means natural wealth and riches. It doesn't mean spiritual riches. Amen. It means spiritual. What do you think? Abraham was blessed with spiritual gold and silver and livestock? What do you have, like, ethereal gold and silver and livestock falling everywhere? Went? Isaac, when David gave $6 billion modern day money of gold and silver to build the temple of Solomon. Well, you think that was just like spiritual gold that came out of his own treasury? Or did he have actual wealth and riches? Isaiah, uh, Psalm 112, those that are the upright, those that are the righteous, wealth and riches shall be in their house. 
What does that mean, spiritual wealth and riches? What does that even mean? What's spiritual wealth and riches? <laughs> what does that even mean? Because you could make then the argument that every believer is spiritually wealthy because your spirit's been renewed and you're on your way to heaven. It's not talking about that. It's talking about natural wealth and riches. God doesn't want you broke. He wants you blessed. But see, they, they cut this stuff out of the gospel because they're embarrassed to preach it because you've got pimps in the pulpit that are hirelings instead of actual men of God. They've been placed there by their board and they can't even make decisions on their own or lead their own church because they're led around by the nose by 12 men that are lay people that don't even know anything about ministry. That's what happens. And I've warned preachers against it. They don't listen. They get thrown out of their own churches by people that aren't even preachers. Talk to one guy. He said, what changes would you, I preached for him. He said, I need you to come over to revival. He said, what changes would you make in my church if, if you were the pastor? I said, first thing I'd do is get lay people off your board and put ministers on there that can guide you in ministry. He said, no, no, brother, they're good people. For a few months later, they threw him out of his own church. So he goes down the road, starts a second one, calls me up. What should I do in this new church plan? I'm sorry. I said, don't make another board full of lay people. Get preachers on your board that love you and will guide you with wisdom. Well, he put more lay people on the board. They threw him out of his second church. They'll learn eventually. If I'm a plumber and I need to be apprenticed in plumbing, I'm not going to get around a bunch of electricians. If I'm a brain surgeon, you better believe I'm not going to be getting my training from mechanics. Now, what wrench do you use on the brain? People aren't even smart. It's like, what do you think's going to happen? And the problem is, we've got people placed in pulpits by their grandmother who started the church because she had enough money to do it. Or, and they only preach what the, what the people who give the most in the offering want to hear. And if they get a little side note from somebody that, that's a big giver in the church, you know, didn't really appreciate that message last week, Pastor. Let's try to keep it more about this. Oh, yeah, okay, no problem, no problem. You know why they do that? Because they've got no intestinal fortitude. That's guts, by the way. Got no guts, got no backbone. Might as well be a jellyfish. They're not men of God. They don't speak from the mouth of God. I had one pastor call me up and tell me. He said, I want you to come to the church. I said, all right. And we started discussing some of the details. Every time I asked him to clarify a detail, he said, well, I don't have the authority to make that decision. I have to talk to the board. I don't have the authority. I said, what authority do you have as the lead pastor of your church? None? I mean, like, what's going on? And this is what's happening is that there's weak leadership, there's weak authority, and so they won't preach what the Word of God says for fear of somebody being offended or somebody removing them from places of authority. And so this, the body has to suffer because you got leaders that we're, are no leaders at all. They're puppets. Might as well put a teleprompter up and let whoever gives the most in the church write the words on the teleprompter for the preacher to read. Might as well get out of your church. You're just a puppet for whoever gave the most. It's not a leader. And me meanwhile, you've got people in the seats that are dying because they need healing, but you're not allowed to preach healing because it's too controversial. You're not allowed to preach prosperity. Meanwhile, you've got 16 people dying under credit card debt and student loan debt, and they're about to get divorced because there's so much pressure in the marriage from financial issues. But you can't preach on Jesus the provider and Jesus the one who'll bring you into a blessing financially because that's too controversial. So you got the devil gets so happy in those churches, he's lifting his hands and singing during the praise and worship. Because they've narrowed the gospel. 
Narrowed it. There's churches, they don't even want people laying hands on anybody anymore. These new churches, they don't want people laying hands. Well, we don't do that in our Sunday mornings, brother, because it makes people uncomfortable. Good. Let them get uncomfortable. Well, we don't speak in tongues because there's visitors that come and they think it's creepy. They need to be creeped out. Have you seen half these people that come in? If you look at what's normal in our society in 2020, they need to get creeped out. Some of them need the hell scared out of them. I'm being absolutely honest with you today. They need the hell scared out of them. The Bible says some being saved by fear, hating even their garments to smell like smoke. There's been too much nonsense preached in the pulpit. You can just do whatever you want and God will approve of your life. There needs to be godly sorrow that leads to repentance. People aren't ashamed of their sins in 2020 in the, in the church. They post them on Facebook Saturday night and come play on the worship team Sunday morning. Got the same miniskirt on you wore to the club last night in church Sunday morning. I'm just preaching real. People aren't ashamed. There's no godly sorrow that leads to repentance. They've, it's because we've narrowed the gospel. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen after 30 years of seeker-sensitive church? See, that's a seed that people tried to sow into America. What do you think is going to happen after 30 years of seeker-sensitive church? That we start our church services with secular songs. Let me tell you something. If your church, and I know this happens because pastors have told me, if your church starts their worship service with ACDC, you've got a problem. If you're starting with a Katy Perry song or a Justin Bieber song, you've got a problem. I said, you've got a problem. Well, we want to be more palatable to those that are unsaved. Yeah, since when was the church called to do that? Well, make yourself as worldly as possible so worldly people will like what you're doing. You'll be hated for my name's sake. See, that's the difference. But they narrow the gospel down because they've, they've got no cajones. None at all. And that's the problem is that there, what's happened is that we've got bastards in the church. No spiritual fathers, no impartation. Nobody's taught them anything. They just come out of nowhere and get a little, they got their degree from a website online and then start pre- preaching in a storefront church. Think they're a pastor. You've got nothing to give. If nothing's been poured into me, I can't pour anything out of me. And spiritual bastards. That's why I wrote it in the, in the new book, Further Faster. I did a whole chapter on spiritual bastards. You know, people get no impartation, no spiritual father, no correction, no, don't receive any word from anybody, just do their own thing. There's no such thing as lone rangers in the body of Christ. Got to be connected somewhere. Got to be connected somewhere. And so the reason there's a weak word is because there's no impartation and because there's no strength of anointing. And we're being led around with manipulation. Devil loves it. He loves it. Because he just wants there to be a weak word. A weak word. That's why the devil loves the hyper grace movement. If you think it's good, a good thing, let me tell you a way that you can write in your notes to actually be able to judge whether something is of God or not. Here's an easy litmus test to see if something uh, is of God or not. Look at the fruit it produces. That's all you got to do. If a tree has bitter or rotten roots, it'll produce rotten fruit. It has good roots. If it's a good tree, it'll produce good fruit. If something is of God, it will produce godly fruit. If a doctrine 
is a doctrine inspired by God and sent by God, it will produce things that are pleasing to God. I've never spoken to one pastor across this nation who the hyper grace message and movement touched the, their people in their church. And they got a hold of these books and started listening to these teachings. I've never spoken to one pastor who said to me, man, it's really produced a wonderful work of righteousness in my people. Man, they're on fire like they've never been on fire. They're more faithful to church than they've ever been. They're giving more. They're winning more souls. I mean, I've never seen them get on such on fire. You know what they say? They get connected to the hyper grace movement, start reading that. You know what they start doing? Stop coming to church. Well, pastor, we're not under works. We're under grace. We don't have to be faithful to church. We don't have to give. We don't have to read our Bible. We don't have to pray. We don't have to win the lost. That's the fruit of what that produces. Any doctrine that makes you okay with sin is not a doctrine of God. It's not a doctrine of God. And and when, when you look at the fruit of what something produces... It's the pure proof of whether God initiated it or he did not. Let me give you this. The third thing, because I know we're, I'm just feeling, I'm feeling it on this Monday, man. I'm feeling like rolling. Steve, I'm feeling the fire, man. Shout, shout me a fire. Yeah, I'm feeling it. That's right. Feeling it up here. God's, God's speaking to us on a Monday. But understand this. I'm going to give you this. Uh, number one. The devil wants us to doubt the word of God. Number two, he wants us to narrow down the gospel message and not take advantage of all the benefits Christ provided through the shedding of his blood. He wants us to be deficient in certain areas. Save but sick. Save but broke. Save but suicidal. Save but divorced. You see what I mean? He wants us to not be able to take advantage of what God has provided through Christ. And these things have been provided through Christ. And so I want to give you this, number three. The third thing that the devil loves that is a mistake in the church is a silent voice. A silent voice. A silent voice. Let me, let me say it to you this way, because the devil really doesn't have power. Christ stripped him of his power. You know, Christ said, all power is given unto me. What did he say to his followers? I give unto you all power. Oh, hallelujah. So when he used the word all, you don't have to be a, as George W. Bush said, you don't have to be a rocket surgeon. Um, (laughs) He mixed up rocket scientist and brain surgeon. Anyway, you don't have to be super smart to understand when he used the word all, it means all. Means all. If he's given you all power, how much is left for the devil? None. He spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So the devil wants us to be silent, but God's given you a voice for a purpose, given you ability to speak with boldness. You know, God's looking for some bold people. I mean, he's looking for some some loud mouths. That's who God's looking for. Some loud mouth people that are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, he's not looking for little whisperers. And you think about it. I mean, I want you to think about it. Paul, how many in the studio and online by the raising of an emoji hand or a raising of a hand in the thing, you would agree probably in the New Testament, Paul was one of the boldest men we ever saw. Apostle Paul, probably one of the boldest men in the New Testament outside of Christ. Here's a dude that was stoned to death. They left him outside the city for dead. 
Here's a man that was beaten with rods. I mean, shipwrecked, all these different things. I mean, they, they came at this man. Came at this man. He said, I bear upon my body the marks. Think about that. Think how many people in this world right now could say what Paul said. You know, this is why when the, when the other churches were being infiltrated by these false apostles, and he called them super apostles, he said, let me ask you, have they worked for Christ? I have much more. Have they suffered for Christ? I have much more. And he said, now I'm bragging like a madman. He said, but I bear upon my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know what that means? He could have taken off his shirt at any given time and showed you the scars of the beatings he took for preaching the gospel. He could have taken off. You probably could have seen the disfigurement of his face from taking rocks to the face when he was stoned. Probably left lasting scars on his face and on his body. They, they stoned him to death and left him for dead outside the city. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. So don't tell me that I'm not doing the work of the Lord. And so we would probably say he's one of the most bold men in the New Testament. Said it like it was, preached it like it was, went and did it even though they didn't want him to do it. But if you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, this passage always blows my mind because he goes through talking about how he's been praying for them And then at the end of the letter, what does he ask? He said, um, after he talks about the armor of God, verse 18, he says, and praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now look at verse 19. And also pray for me. Here's the super apostle. Asking the church to pray for him and also pray for me. What does he want him to pray? That words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. He's writing this from jail, by the way. What's he asking? Keep praying for me, guys, so that I can boldly preach the gospel. Now, let me tell you something. If Paul needed more boldness, every one of us needs more boldness. Paul who was beaten, stoned, Paul who was shipwrecked, Paul who would not stop. If he needed boldness, everyone watching needs more boldness. I need more boldness. People in this church need more boldness. If we're going to do what God's called us to do, he said, and pray for me. So I can tell you, one of the things we could always pray for is that God would give us more boldness. So that that spirit of fear, you know, how many have ever, if you're watching online or maybe you're watching here at low, in, in the room, raise your hand. If you've ever felt to step out and do something for God, but you felt like a fear come on you to talk to somebody about Jesus or witness talk, you feel that like a, 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 a almost like a, an apprehension that's like, oh, put it in the comments. If, if you felt that, let me tell you something. That's not your fear. That's the spirit of fear. The devil is afraid that you will step out and become what God's called you to be. And you have to say, you know what? I'm going, I'm pushing beyond that feeling. And that's what the boldness of the Holy Ghost is for. So that we move beyond what, you know, what the flesh may feel or what a spirit of fear may try to make us feel. And we say, forget that. 
I'm moving out. I'm stepping out. I'm going to speak and speak boldly, but in love, with gentleness. That's what Peter said. He said, when you do it, people have questions about the faith or the hope that lies within you. He said, be able to give them an answer, but do it with all gentleness and respect. You don't get bold and brash and rude. You get bold, not holding back the truth, but you speak the truth in love. Hallelujah. You speak the truth in love. I've never met one homosexual, lesbian, trans person that I don't love. Love every one of them. I want to see them go to heaven. I don't go out bashing gay people. I'm not a gay basher, not a lesbian basher, not a trans basher, bisexual basher. Even if you're questioning, I'm not bashing you. I love you. Want to see you saved. Want to see you changed by the power of God. I preached in Washington, Pennsylvania. I had a gay couple that attended my entire revival. Two guys. They sat together. They were homosexuals. They were more faithful to the revival than some of the church people. They were there every single night listening to the guy. And I don't, anybody's heard me preach, I don't pull punches. You know, I'm not like watering it down. I, I preached my guts out. Do you know on the final night, gave the altar call? Not the final night, the second of the last night. Gave the altar call and one of them got out of the seat and came forward to the altar to be saved. The next night, only he was back. I can only imagine they broke up because now he's saved and the other one's not. And so he's back and he's along the wall to be anointed with oil and receive the anointing of God. Now, if I said, if I was one of these guys, well, I don't want any gays in my meeting. Ushers throw these homosexuals out. No, no. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching the truth in love. I don't care. See, sin is sin. It will, different sins will affect you differently. No question about that. Some sins bring a different judgment, no question about that. But all sin will send you to hell. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. There's nobody that hasn't been born into sin, shaped in iniquity. All of us needed the gospel. All of us needed a life change. And so I'm not going to steal somebody's opportunity to have the gospel because I don't like their particular sin. Because that sin will send you to hell. Lying will send you to hell. Stealing will send you to hell. Murders will send you to hell. You understand? And so the thing is, I'll have them. They're welcome. But understand, I'm not going to then coddle their sin because they're in the crowd. You know, I love this. I'm trying to remember who said this, if it was Finney or Spurgeon, one of the great revivalists. He said, before you can get people saved, you got to get them lost. You know why? Because people, for the most part, think they're all right. They think their life's all right. I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not, like, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm doing okay. I'm a pretty nice guy. See, but the thing is, your works can't get you saved. And so you have to understand that the, the, the situation a human being is in without Christ is devastating. It'll destroy you. You got to get them saved. You got to get people to see, I'm on my way to hell. I'm done if I don't get Jesus. You got to get them lost before you can get them found. Hallelujah. People need to understand where they're at. But it takes boldness to be that way. It takes boldness and love and compassion for people. It's like when I say, if I've ever had my young daughter or now my young son, if I saw them out there pre- playing on the uh, Interstate 95 or Route 2, if I just saw them out there dancing on the lines, I run out there as a loving father 
urgently snatch their arm and pull them off the highway. Now, if you were so zoomed in that all you saw was a big old dad jerking on a four-year-old boy's arm, you'd probably say, well, that's not right that he treats his son like that. That's a little rough for a four-year-old boy. He shouldn't be out there as a big old dad doing that to his son. But if that's because you're too zoomed in, if you'd zoom out and see that there's a Mack truck coming, and if I didn't do what I did with urgency and with force, then my boy's gone forever. And here's what they don't realize in 2020. They hear people like us preaching the word and preaching it with fire. And they say, well, they're too harsh. They're too strong. They're too bold. They're too wild. Yeah, that's because you're too zoomed in. Zoom out and see there is a Mack truck coming. It's called eternity. And if I don't do it with boldness and urgency, you're done. Done forever. So because I love you, I get urgent. I get bold. I say it plain. I don't pull punches. Because there's not time to pull punches. Can you imagine standing on the side of Interstate 95 and going, now you better get over here. You're going to be grounded if you don't get over here. Do you want me to take away video games? I'll take away, I'll take away video games. I'm going to put you in time out. No loving parent's going to do that. In fact, a loving parent would run, and if they had to in their last moments, dive and push their child out of the way and take the truck themselves to see their child live. Why? Because that's what love does. Love creates an urgency, a passion. Compel them to come in. See? And so boldness. The devil wants a silent church. He wants us, listen to me, because I'm closing with this. He wants us to be so embarrassed by the culture that we don't talk. Well, you know, this isn't really the time for that. Well, when is the time for it? That's the question. Because they're not going to ever make time for your gospel message. Well, it's just kind of an inappropriate moment. When's the appropriate moment? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. So the question we ask ourselves is, what's the point? If we're not going to stand up and declare the goodness of God to people, tell them the truth, Making the, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, making the most of every opportunity in these evil days. You know, one of the things I'm going to pray for you today after we, after I finish this in a moment is that God would do what he did for the apostle Paul and open up doors of opportunity. See, because here's the key. We're, we're making the most of every opportunity in these evil days days. So the days are evil and we need opportunity to see souls saved. But I like what Paul said. He actually had made plans to go somewhere else. And he told him, I'm not coming to you. He said, because a door of opportunity is open to me here. I'll postpone that. But right now I got to go through this door of opportunity. He said, though many oppose me, there is opposition when God opens the door. But notice this, the opposition can't stop you from going through the door. Can't stop you from accomplishing your purpose. There'll be opposition, but it can't stop you or take you out. And so God's the one who opens doors of opportunity. In fact, it's Christ. For the Bible says in the book of Revelation, Christ holds in his hand the key of David. And when he opens doors, no man can shut them. Glory to God. I said, glory to God. 
Hallelujah. So catch this now. When God opens a door for you, for me, it's a door no man can shut. No devil can shut it. No demon. And so, what we're going to pray is that God, before this year comes to an end, will start opening up doors of opportunity like we've never seen so that we can run through with boldness and see souls saved, family members saved, loved ones saved, friends saved. And that we could say, my house is serving the Lord by the end of this year. Doors of opportunity. See, first of all, we're never going to doubt the mighty word of God. Mistake number one. We're never going to doubt it. Number two, we're never going to narrow down the gospel. Never. And number three, I'm never going to shut my mouth. I'm never going to quiet down. I'm never going to calm down. No. Never. This is the time to speak with boldness. You're anointed. We're anointed to do what God's called us to do. Oh, hallelujah. And I'm telling you that we're in the greatest moment to be alive that ever existed because Jesus Christ is coming. I believe we're the generation that'll see him come. I believe that. And if we're going to see him come, there's work to be done before he does come. There is work to be done. We're occupying until he comes. So I want you that are watching, those of you here, to bow your head. I'm going to pray for every person. We're going to be the church victorious. We're going to be the church on fire. We're going to be the church that accomplishes our purpose by the power of God. We're not going to lose. We're not going to miss out on what God has for us in these final moments of time. Father, in Jesus' name we come to you and we thank you for the mighty anointing of the Holy Ghost that's upon every one of us. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. Now we ask you, Lord, to impart new faith to us. We thank you. We've received even more just hearing the word today, for faith comes by hearing. But impart a spirit of faith to every man and every woman. I pray in Jesus' name that we would believe your word like never before. We thank you, Lord. We set your word at the highest position in our lives that ever could be. It is preeminent. It takes priority over everything. It's exalted even above your name. We thank you for your word. We'll always believe it. Number two, we thank you that we will never narrow down what you did through redemption. We will never strip out the benefits of redemption to make religious people comfortable or to make others more uh, feel like it's more palatable to receive. We stand for the full gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand for everything you purchased, Lord. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for healing. We thank you for provision. We thank you for peace and joy. We thank you for, we thank you for uh, uh, not only that, but power in the Holy Ghost. We thank you that we have the power to cast out devils and destroy the works of the enemy. We thank you, Lord, that there's nothing that you've called us to do that we cannot accomplish through your anointing. And now we ask you to give us, as Paul prayed, a supernatural boldness in the Holy Ghost supernatural boldness set our hearts on fire in these final three months of 2020 and let us run into a new year with a new and a fresh boldness in the holy ghost people wonder what got into us they'll wonder what happened what in the world got into you i thank you lord it's the holy ghost operating at us in us at a another level glory to god and we thank you we give you praise for your goodness your mercy. We love you, Lord. Use us for your glory. 
in Jesus' mighty name. If you believe it, somebody shout amen. amen. And throw some fire in the comment section. Let me know that you're a believing God with us, those of us that are here, those of us in this revival. And let me encourage you, those of you watching, those that are here, we're encouraging you because we're getting ready to step up. We're going to see God move in 2021 like we never have, getting ready to hit the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't say that lightly. We're starting with 80 million homes on three continents every week to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will then carry the gospel to an extra 39 million people in the Caribbean islands. And uh, coming up two days from now, I'm getting ready to preach a virtual crusade where I'm going to be speaking uh, to Christians uh, in over 150 nations of the world coming up in two days on Wednesday afternoon with a television network that's in Pakistan that will touch 150 nations of the world. I'm going to preach. I'm going to call people to Jesus. I'm going to pray for the sick. That happens in two days. But we're going to be doing that on a weekly basis around the world. So when you stand to partner with me and with Carolyn and Miracle Word Ministries, you're partnering with a ministry that is touching the world. God opened these doors. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I want to encourage you to sow a seed today. Sow a seed by faith and believe God to use you and your family to touch the world. That's what's happening. When you join us in partnership, you are touching the world with us. We're doing it as a family. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never prayed about it, if you've never asked the Lord, maybe today is the day that he would speak to you to stand with us in monthly partnership. Whether that's $85 a month, $50 a month, whatever it is the Lord speaks to you to do. You can easily do it. Go to miracleword.com and you can click on the give page. And from there, there's many ways you can give. You can use Cash App, PayPal, Venmo. You can use hashtag donate on Facebook, Twitter, or Periscope. Or right there on the website, on the give page, there's a form that you can fill out and set up either a one-time seed or a monthly recurring seed. And we've been praying and asking God, send us people that believe in this vision that will stand with us in faith and see this end time harvest reaped. There's people that are watching that you own businesses, you have ministries. God's speaking to you to sow uh, largely, sow largely, $10,000, $50,000 seed to touch the world. Do what he's telling you to do. God will bless you. I know he will. His word says he will, and we don't doubt his word. For everybody that's sowing $85 or more this month, we've got this powerful book by Dr. Lester Summerall entitled Adventuring with Christ. This is the story of his ministry, how he got started, worked with Howard Carter, worked with Smith Wigglesworth, traveled the world, had true adventures. It's like reading a novel. This book will build your faith and bless you. It's our gift to you this month. And of course, everybody that's sowing largely, $1,000 or more, we're going to include with that the Genuine Leather Life Application Study Bible, as well as a limited edition hardcover of my new book, Further Faster, to bless you, to say we love and appreciate you. And by the way, and thank you for those of you that are already sewing on Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, the website. I can see seeds coming in, and thank you for sewing. We love and appreciate everybody that's standing with us. We're here all week at Crossroads Community Church, Monday through Friday, 7 p.m. at night. Tonight, my father's going to be releasing a word. You don't want to miss it. Also, if there's no way whatsoever you can get here to the church, 
will be broadcasting these services on Facebook, Periscope, and YouTube. And you can watch online on your phone, tablet, laptop, whatever. And we want to encourage you to not only watch, but to engage. You can receive a miracle literally by watching these services uh, online. We've had people write in testimonies that God healed them. God touched them while watching these meetings online. Good to see you, Rose, in Germany. Love you. Winona, God bless you. David, Norman, JD, God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out MiracleWordKids.com. We have all the new resources for your children uh, up and ready to go. The new magazine is already shipped out to people on the list. If you'd like to get a copy of it, go to the, the website and sign up to receive it. We'll get, uh, get you one as soon as possible. For those of you that are watching from overseas, if you'd like a copy of the magazine, we will send you a digital copy via email immediately so that you can join in with us and enjoy uh, the content as well. We love you guys so much. I'll be back again in the morning. Tomorrow, I'm going to be dealing with something extremely important in the morning. Extremely important in the morning, 10.30 a.m. I'm going to be talking from the Word of God on this question. A lot of men of God I'm hearing saying this. A lot of things we're seeing online. Is God judging America? And if He is, how do we avoid that judgment? That's tomorrow on the broadcast, 10.30. You you don't want to miss it. Is God judging America? And if he is, how do we avoid the judgment of God on this nation? I love you guys. We'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock. Have a great day. Thanks to everybody that sewed. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.